I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 4, verse 43 through chapter 5, 17. This is from the English um, Standard Version. After two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Arabic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, It is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man that said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. That is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working to now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. I first learned how to preach in seminary, and in seminary they teach you to spend time with the Word and to dig through the commentaries and the concordances and look at the original language and, and 
get a grip on the text and uh, develop your sermon with its proposition and its points and its applications. Oh, I got to use the new language for that. It's um, you, um, you know, the Presbyterians used to say that a sermon was three points in a poem. <laughs> and it's true. If you look at all those old sermons, usually they would have their three points and then they'd end with a poem that kind of applied the whole thing. But nowadays, preachers refer to truths. And um, there are some truths in this message this morning. I'm not going to tell you how many. You can figure that out as I speak. And they talk about unpacking the text. Now, we used to talk about um, expounding the text, but now we unpack it. And um, when you get to the end, you don't talk about application, you talk about takeaways. Well, as I developed as a preacher and teacher and other things, I also became a storyteller. And I told stories in Bible school at our church, and I found that children could remember stories I told years before. But if I asked them what sermon I had preached the previous Sunday, they could not remember. So now I'd like to come to the Scripture as a story, as a storyteller. And as I come to the Scriptures as a story, I spend a lot of time with the Word, and I spend a lot of time looking at it, especially narrative texts like we have before us this morning, as a story. And this means, as a good storyteller knows, you've got to consider the six W's. Uh, the six W's, well, newspaper people know this too. Uh, who, what, when, where, why, and how ends with a W. <laughs> and then there's the six C's. You want to look at the characters. You want to look at the circumstances. You want to look at the um, conflict and the crisis and the conclusion, the context of the whole. And as you get a grip on these things, as you start to look at the text, it begins to unfold for a storyteller with a lot more depth. Now, we have a problem this morning. Whoever did set up put you all way out there. And us storytellers do not like our audiences to be way out there. So I guess I'm going to have to come to you. It was a hot day in Cana. Oh, Cana was a little town, a couple hundred people up in the hills of Galilee, a place of orchards and vineyards and fig trees. And Jesus and his disciples had just arrived recently from Jerusalem where he had been very much involved in ministry and in the Judea. His disciples, there were just a few of them at this time. There were five of them. One of them lived in Cana. His name was Nathaniel. Probably they were staying in his house. And a hot afternoon, about one in the afternoon, there in Cana. Now, Jesus had not stopped in Nazareth, which is down the road maybe five, six, eight miles. Nobody's quite certain where Cana was, but it was a small town up in the hills of Galilee, 
And Jesus perhaps is sitting under one of those fig trees because it's shady there and it's going to be like this afternoon here. Hot. And the man arrives. And this man is sweating. He's dressed up like a, uh, somebody royal, perhaps a noble, somebody with nice clothes and wealth, and he's, he's dirty and dusty, and he's obviously desperate. Something concerns him greatly. He's come from Capernaum. Now, Capernaum's about a day, a long day's journey away. It's down by the Sea of Galilee. It's a very important commerce center. It's on the road between um, Syria and Palestine. It's a center of activity, uh, social activity and political activity. It's a place where taxes are paid. In fact, Matthew was a tax collector in Capernaum. It's also a place where there was a Roman garrison and it was a place where there were officials for the government, including this one man who perhaps even was of the family of Herod Antipas, the, the administrator, the so-called king, the ruler of Galilee and Perea. This man has arrived in Cana, desperate about something. His son, his son is seriously ill. His son is on the point of death. And obviously, this man, a man of wealth and power in an important center like that, has consulted with all the doctors, and he's tried every possible remedy to deal with his son's need. And he's desperate because the doctors apparently have no hope for this child. And then he realizes that he's heard stories about this man and the wondrous signs he did down in Jerusalem. This, this teacher, Jesus. And he's also heard the stories about Elijah and Elisha and other rabbis and teachers whose prayers are really powerful. And if he could just get Jesus to come and pray on his son and lay his hands upon him. His son could be healed and have life. And he's, it's the only hope he's got is that he, he can find this Jesus. And so he sets out. And, you know, the text just says, well, he shows up. Well, you have to realize it must have been a search. I mean, you don't just um, check the local newspaper. Jesus will be at this location at this time and place. No. He had to go hit the road and search. Now, I knew that Jesus had come back to Galilee, and finally he finds him, and it's about one in the afternoon, and it's hot, and he's obviously desperate, and he comes up to Jesus, and he pleads with him, please, please come with me to Capernaum and pray over my child. He's about to die. He's at the point of death. And Jesus looks at him, takes in his royal robes, and says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. This is Jesus. Jesus who's loving and caring. And these words are so harsh. And, and, and the man was thinking, what? Is it because I'm a royal? Because after all, the word you there is a good southern word, y'all. 
and it's in the plural. And so he's not, Jesus is not just speaking about this man. He's speaking about a whole class of people. And he's had experiences with this recently in Jerusalem and, and in his ministry where people want miracles, but even then it's questionable whether they're going to believe or not. But they want the miracles. And the man's thinking, is it because I'm a royalty? Is it be, this guy is obviously doesn't like politicians? No. Well, maybe it's those things that happened to him with those Pharisees in Jerusalem. Because he just left Jerusalem and Judea because things were getting a little bit difficult down there. And then he began to realize that Jesus is still looking at him. Sir, please, he gets down on his knees and he pleads with Jesus. Come with me. Come, come with me and heal my son. And Jesus looks at him and says, Go. Your son is living. Can you imagine what was going through that man's mind as Jesus said those words? He's just brushing me off. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't he just say my son is living? Maybe he knows something I don't. But I just got to trust him on this. I got to trust him. And so the man trusted the word of Jesus and he set out. Like I say, it's a long journey, good day's journey, and the day is well half over. And so by the next day, as he's nearing his town, he meets his servants. Can you imagine what was going through that man's mind as he was heading back to Capernaum? Is my son alive or dead? I've got to trust what Jesus says. It's my only hope. And his servants come, and he sees them coming, and he starts to think, oh, no, it's bad news. But they're smiling. They're excited. And they tell me that my son has recovered. He's gotten well. And the man thinks for a second, he says, well, what exactly, when did he get well? Why, yesterday at the seventh hour, one o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. The man realized that Jesus had healed his son miles and miles away, and this truly had to be God. And, and he rejoiced in him, and as he went home and he told his household, they believe too. Well, after this, and sometimes when the Bible says after this, it's just a few minutes, a day or two, but this time it's a year. During this year, a lot of things have happened. Jesus has gone to Nazareth and they've rejected him because he wouldn't do miracles. So he goes to Capernaum which is the town of Peter, and namely Simon Peter, and others, and he starts to minister in those regions from there, and miracles start to happen one after another after another, and the people come, and it's so crowded in that place that they have to, some people actually have to pull open the roof and lower the sick down through the ceiling in order that they might be healed. And Jesus is practically healing the entire countryside with miracles. And then Jesus goes to Jerusalem. 
He kind of sneaks off, it seems like, because there's no mention of anybody going with him, though the disciples possibly could have been along. And he went for a feast. It doesn't tell us what feast it is, but it could possibly have been the next Passover. If so, it was almost a year after our first story. Now, there is in Jerusalem a pool called Bethsaida in Arabic, Aramaic, excuse me. And when Spurgeon and Calvin wrote their commentaries, they didn't know where it was. But in 1888, they were doing some work on the church of St. Anne in Jerusalem, which is close to the temple, and they found there was a basin there, and as they began to excavate it, they discovered it was surrounded by five colonnades, pillars with roofs, and, and they realized they had found the site that John describes in his gospel. Now, it was probably Passover, uh, Passover time. It was at least a feast. And in those times, lots of people come to Jerusalem. And when they come to Jerusalem, they come to, to do their um, worship and, and the things that they do during the feast, whether it's Passover, Tabernacles, or whatever. And also lots of people show up looking for alms and help. I mean, anytime there's a big event, you get people showing up with their hat on the ground and they're looking for help. And there's also a story about this particular pool in that, and, and the, truth, the truth is, it was, a, it was a big thing. It was like 200 feet across and 300 feet long. That's pretty good sized. And five roofed areas around it and the pool was fed by some intermittent springs so that occasionally there would be a surge of moisture in it to it and the water would kind of swirl around. And the story was that if you, an angel was brushing the water with his wings, and if you got in the pool at just that moment, you'd get healed. And um, in fact, some scribes and others actually slipped that into the King James Bible and some of the others, but it's not in the earlier text, so it's not in the English Standard Version. But, but it was considered to be a pool of healing, and so a lot of people had gathered there, some who legitimately wanted to be healed and were just waiting for those waters to be stirred, and there were invalid people and weak people and lame people and just all kinds of sick people. But I'm sure there were many there, too, that were just simply looking for a handout from all the pilgrims coming by. And there was one man in particular that had been suffering from a wasting disease for 38 years. He was so weak that he had to be carried to the pool, and he had a mattress there, and he would lay there, and he would wait. And when that moment would come, when the waters were stirred, he couldn't get up and get to the water to the water in time. <clears throat> Excuse me. And a stranger walks up. A stranger walks up and he looks up at him laying there on the ground and he wonders what this stranger's about to do and the stranger looks at him and says, do you want to be healed? That's an odd question. <clears throat> of course he wants to be healed, but... Maybe he's got more to that question. Maybe he's just implying that I'm some kind of beggar, you know, and, and that I want um, 
you know, some alms. Because there are some people out here that are really not that sick, though they are good at pretending. Um, do I want to be healed? <coughs> Is there any water over here? <laughs> no. Bob will get me some. Okay, so. He responds. I do, but I need help. I need help because when the waters get stirred, there's no way I can get over there. People get there first, and I need someone to help me to the water, and maybe you, sir, would help me do that. And this stranger looks at him and says, Hmm, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. What? He wants me to do what? Thank you, Bob. That's impossible. I've been sick for 38 years. But I'll try. And he stands up. Probably more surprised than anybody that he could do that. And just about then, everybody around him starts looking because they've known him for years, and there he is standing up. What's going on here? And he, commotion breaks out, and, and there's lots of talk and jostling. And, and did he get to the water? Did the water stir and we miss it? No, he, he never. What happened here? And obedient to the stranger's command, he picks up his pallet, rolls it up, throws it on his shoulder, and he starts to walk. And just about then, the Sabbath police show up. The Sabbath police, you know, they're the ones that are going to make sure that you're not breaking the Sabbath. And so they show up. What are you doing carrying that bed around? Don't you realize this is the holy day, the Sabbath? Uh, uh. No, I was healed, and this man who healed me told me to pick it up and walk. Who told you? to do that and he starts to look around and there's all this commotion but the stranger is vanished I don't know and this is kind of interesting because you know those Sabbath police they could care less about the fact the guy was healed all they care about is the fact that he's got his pad on his shoulder and he's walking on the Sabbath and they're very upset well, I don't know. I imagine probably that man had arrived before the Sabbath and would not leave until after the Sabbath when his friends brought him there. But somehow he got home that day. Whether he took the pad any farther than that, I do not know. But anyway, later we were told that he was in the temple. And the stranger walks up. It's Jesus. And then Jesus says to him, See? You are well. But don't let sin drag you down. Or things could get worse. Two stories. And now, I know you just want me to unpack this and give you a takeaway, so I'm going to step back up to the pulpit. What do you think? 
Why did John give us these two miracles? It's very interesting because as you study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one has their distinct style to them, has their distinct purpose. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics we call them, kind of follow the same outline, the same story of Jesus' life. Now, true, Matthew tends to be more on topics, and Luke uh, follows a slightly different approach and adds some material that the other two left out. And probably Matthew and Luke had Mark's gospel, which was likely written first and which we all know very well because Nate preached through it recently. Well, a while back anyway. And John comes along towards the end of the creation of the New Testament and writes his gospel. And what he does in that gospel is surprising because he kind of fills in the gaps. In fact, chapters 2 of John through chapter 5, this portion we just considered, all fall before Mark chapter 1, verse 14, before Luke chapter 4, before Matthew, and i got to pull up my notes here, chapter 4 as well. John is filling in a gap in the story of the life of Jesus and his ministry that the other Gospels don't even talk about. And it's also quite interesting because when it gets down to miracles, there are 45 different miracles recorded in the Gospels. Of those 45 miracles, John only tells us about seven. Or maybe eight if you include the marvelous draught of fishes at the end of the gospel. Seven out of 45. And six of those miracles that John tells us about are not found in the other gospels. Hmm. Interesting. Why did John give us these two miracles which are not found anywhere else in the Gospels. What was he thinking about? You notice too that as John uses his miracles, Jesus' miracles in the development of his Gospel, he's very, um, he kind of plays down the miracle aspect. He uses the miracle to take us into the teaching of Jesus because John is very much concerned that we understand the things that, that Jesus was teaching, the discourses, the, um, well, chapter 3, Nicodemus, how you be born again. And, and the answer is, God so loved the world, he sent his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the work of God. Chapter 4, when he meets the woman at the well, and, and I'm the living water. All through the Gospel of John, it's, it's focused on what Jesus was teaching and especially on the importance of faith in believing 
God's word and the gospel and, and trusting in Jesus. And then we come to these two little miracles. Very interesting. Um, why these stories? Hmm. Let's think about them for a moment. In both of them, there's some very obvious things. First of all, the disciples aren't around. Oh, they're around, but they're not mentioned. In most of Jesus' miracles, you have his disciples there, and they react, and they, they comment, and they have explanations given to them about Jesus and what he was doing, and they were witnesses. But it almost seems like John got these two accounts secondhand. And as you look at them, you see that unlike so many of Jesus' activity in the Gospel of John, the dialogue is sparse. Now, us storytellers know the dialogue is very important, especially in biblical narrative. It's in the dialogue that you get to know character. It's in the dialogue where time slows down and you really get to the point, the focus, the action. I mean, the battle scenes that we've been reading about in, in Judges, blink of the eye. Well, I take that back. Abimelech was a long story. <laughs> and even longer if he got into some of the ports I wish he'd gotten into, but anyway. Um, but here, Jesus has only five sentences. And as you look at this, you can see that Jesus is underestimated. What do I mean by that? Well, when this man comes to Cana, what does he want from Jesus? He wants Jesus to come with him and pray over his son. And when Jesus comes to the man at the pool, what does this man want? He wants help getting into the pool. Neither one looked upon Jesus as the source of power and deliverance that he is, and he will be, as the story progresses. And so we find, too, that there's a thrust in Jesus. Uh, 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 this is, does not seem like the Jesus we know, does it? He responds to the man who comes begging about his son. You guys just want miracles. Is that Jesus speaking? And he comes to the man at the pool and as a stranger. And after the healing takes place, he disappears into the crowd. There's no effort there at that point in time to, to lead him on towards the trust in God and the gospel and, and, and guiding him in his life. At that point in time, he just vanishes. Hmm. Very interesting. What is John and the Lord trying to teach us through these miracles. First of all, it's clear 
that he wants us to see that when we come to Jesus or Jesus comes to us, oftentimes we don't expect we want what we want from him is far beneath what he wants for us. We have two people who don't get what they want. The um, man at Cana wanted Jesus to come. Did he come? No. The man at the pool, he wanted help getting in the water. Did he get help getting in the water? No. Instead, each one was confronted by the Savior to believe in the impossible. The man in Cana was expected to believe that Jesus simply said, your son lives, go home. Now, all he, he just, that was a tremendous step of faith for him to go home trusting simply in what Jesus had said. And I'm sure that as he went home, there was a lot of hesitation and doubt and uncertainty until he met his servants on the road and asked him what time it really happened. And the man at the pool, he was asked to stand up after 38 years being unable to stand up. And I'm sure in those 38 years he had seen what doctors were available. He had tried every possible herbal remedy. Um, he'd gotten all lots of help from friends that didn't accomplish any. 38 years is a long time. I mean, his friends even brought him and helped him to get to the pool and stuff. I mean, the man had had some help through the years. But then Jesus says, stand up. Pick up your mattress and walk away from this. Wow. What went through that man's mind? Is this stranger crazy? Well, maybe, just maybe I could try. And as he stood up, he was healed. And his whole life turned around. He was shaken. What did Jesus want for them? Did Jesus want the guy's son to live? He did. But more than that, he wanted this guy to see that it was not simply a matter of another rabbi coming and praying over his son. This was the son of God, and if you believe and trust in what he says, he will meet your needs, needs you don't even see you have. And the same thing with the guy at the pool. Jesus is saying, your need is not simply to be healed, but to deal with that sin that is dragging you down. Now, this is a tough verse. I'm sure as Ed and some of the others here have listened to that verse and they're thinking, oh, is he saying that, you know, sin makes us sick? A lot of people have read it that way. But I would suggest to you that Jesus is saying that sin has kept you sick. And it's true. I mean, think about addicts. Do they really want to break their addiction? And if somebody helps them and they go and they go to the 
whatever they call those places where they deal with the addiction and they come out and they just get right back into it again over and over. Sin is involved in that kind of, of um, what's the word for it? Uh, <laughs> a wheel where you just go round and round and round the same circle, that same endless cycle. And it's the sin that has to be broken. And the sin has to be dealt with. It's not simply a matter of his physical weakness. It's a matter of spiritual weakness as well. And Jesus says to him, see, you are well. Not just physically, but spiritually. The grace of God has forgiven your sin, so don't fall back into it. You see, Jesus has an idea of what we need much better than we do. And, and when you go to God and pray and you ask Him to do certain things and He doesn't do them, is He being cold and unlistening and uncaring? Or perhaps is He asking you to believe in something even more impossible will happen in your life? Paul prayed several times that the thorn in his flesh might be taken away and it never came was taken away in god's purpose he used that thorn to work in paul's life to change him and transform him and so we come to the takeaway jesus excuse me i, I got to do this right the takeaway you come to jesus why are you here today why do you pray to the lord what do you want? What do you expect Him to do in your life? How short, possibly, is your sight? Jesus comes to you. What does He see as your need? What can He do in your life? How can He change you? They don't always mesh, do they? We have to learn faith, as Hebrews says, is the assurance of things not seen, the things that are hoped for. And we have to trust that the Lord is working in our heart and in our life for our best interests. Even when disaster comes into our life and we plead with God to help us and we do not see it, Ultimately, we will see that Jesus' power accomplishes the impossible. Jesus does miracles, and John wants us to know it. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we do pray that you will help us to examine our own hearts and see where our faith has been weak and, and um, restricted. And Father, to look to your word and realize as you speak to us through your word that your word, even when it commands what seems impossible to us, is adequate and that we need to believe and trust. We thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. We pray that as we meditate upon it, you will bring glory to your name. And we pray in Jesus' name.